Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Hey, you, should, you think that's bad? See Ryan on the phone in the office. <laughs> wired that way yeah so we got joel bryce on the podcast he is the chief conservation officer at delta waterfowl you want to give yourself a little introduction there joel yeah no problem no problem hey first of all thanks for having me on the podcast uh long time admirer of i guess both the seek outside product and and i think even as much the the mindset mentality you know having shaking a few hands from people at Seek Outside. I just love that family attitude and the, you know, the high quality uh, U.S. made product. So again, thanks. It's uh, considered an honor to be on here. Yeah. Well, we're, we're glad to have you, man. Glad to have you. Good deal. Good deal. Yeah. So, so, so Joel Bryce, um, chief conservation officer for Delta Waterfowl. For those that might not know about Delta Waterfowl that well, we are the oldest waterfowl conservation organization in North America. We were founded in 1911. Cut our teeth on research. You know, what, what makes ducks and geese and wetlands tick? What's proper wetland management, habitat management? But at modern-day Delta, the world has obviously changed a lot. And so we kind of, all of our activities fall into about four buckets. So we have research and education, which is definitely our core we have habitat conservation and, and a lot of policy efforts that go with that. We have duck production. So we have a bunch of field programs that are looking to enhance, you know, wild duck populations. And then also we have this big group, uh, we call it a bucket called Hunter 3, Hunter Recruitment, Retention, and Reactivation. So we have a bunch of hunter recruitment, hunting advocacy programs, Myself, I think March of 2001 is when I started here. I'm a Wisconsin native, um, living in North Dakota now. But, uh, you know, I've spent my whole life outdoors, hunting, fishing, camping. Um, I guess since I moved to North Dakota, I've incorporated horses into my life quite extensively. Uh, wife and a couple kids and just living the dream, I guess. Yeah, that's that's awesome, man. Well, I'm always fascinated with uh, with, you know just conservation and, and so a little background on myself right my my dad was actually a uh he was a board member at the local ducks unlimited chapter uh growing up where i you know in boulder county colorado on the front range here um so you know he was he went to school for wildlife biology um but he's a, he's a big birder right so uh ducks have always been a big part you know i like we we were lucky enough to have a really good lease there um down in in on the front range and you know i mean man i'm freaking spoiled with that spot because it's like you have such a good spot and you know you, you, it wasn't uncommon for us to limit out on you know green heads maybe a couple gadwall widgeon um and it was just kind of like that's we grew up thinking that's what duck hunting was and we had a goose field out behind it um where you know it wasn't great goose hunting but you know we we had some pretty solid days but uh it, it was um so so we were duck hunting like every weekend and um you know when we could and uh my dad being a big ornithologist he kind of instilled that in me um so we were always you know there'd be trips where we'd go out to just the wetlands you know whether it was um in the spring to see some of the blue wing teal who that finally got their 
their crescent moons and or you know we'd go to certain lakes to try to see a canvas back or something like that or you know if if we saw pintails driving somewhere we'd always pull over and and look at them so um ducks and geese and just waterfowl in general have always been um you know super super important to me so i'm glad that we were able to get in contact um and and set this podcast up but I had honestly not heard of Delta waterfowl. That's interesting that you said that it's the the earliest one because I think most people are probably familiar with Ducks Unlimited that are, you know, in the hunting realm, right? Um, and even if you're just a bird watcher, you probably have heard of Ducks Unlimited. But it sounds like you guys are have been there, um, you know, been been around a little bit longer. And I'm sh- not not to say that it's like competitive. I'm sure it's not, and you know, any any money that's going any conservation money that's going towards towards ducks maybe ducks unlimited is probably helping your guys's efforts and stuff like that but but um would you just kind of break down people for people like what is there a difference between delta waterfowl and ducks unlimited or are do you guys collab on a lot of stuff or what's what's the deal there yeah that's a that's a good question it's a common question it I get it I don't want to say all the time, but it's it's not a foreign question. But you know, I would say that you know, Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl are perfect complements to each other. We do have yes, we're interested in you know the same resource, but we we at Delta at least try to occupy a niche that is that is is different, trying mm-hmm. to avoid overlap. But you know, of course, the overlap is is waterfowl and and habitat. But, you know, we, we call ourselves the Duck Hunters Organization. And literally, Ryan, our business model, we, we would, if hunting went away, Delta Waterfowl would go away. Yeah. So we have anchored firmly into our mission statement that we are here to secure the future of waterfowl and waterfowl hunting. So mm-hmm. everything we do has waterfowl hunting in perspective. And, and so we don't buy land you know, directly manage, purchase and manage that land. I know that's a big portion of, of what a lot of other waterfowl organizations do. So we play to our strengths, research, mm-hmm. research and education, hunting advocacy, conservation advocacy, duck production. Yeah. And so it's, it's like, I, I, I do tell people that, uh, you know, my, my dad was on a, on a committee, Ducks Limited committee when I was a kid as well. And, and I have a lot of great memories. And so I do recommend to people, I said, eh, pick up a membership to both organizations. You've got it all covered. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I try to always, you know, talk about that on the podcast. Like there's all these different conservation organizations and if you can do all of them because <laughs> they're all like, there's no much, no such thing in my eyes as, as too much money going towards ducks and too much time. Right. Can't volunteer enough. Um, that's definitely something that I want to do a little bit more is do a little bit more of the volunteering. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so research and education is kind of, kind of your guys's, uh, go-to main staple. Um, what are, you have any big projects that are going on right now? I know there's, there's a couple pretty pressing, uh, waterfowl issues that are going on right now, whether it's avian influenza or, or, you know, I mean, just habitat loss in general is one of the big ones, but do you guys have any big projects going on right now? You know, I guess, you know, looking into each one of those buckets, there's definitely some, some big ticket items going on in each one research and education. A lot of, we, 
are gearing up for a couple of really large uh, research projects, one in Manitoba, Canada, one in Saskatchewan, Canada. The one in Saskatchewan, it's, it's interesting, it's going to be a big radio telemetry study. The way it looks now, we're going to be putting transmitters on blue-winged teal. We're going to put them on during the nesting season, so we'll learn a lot about their brood rearing, their, the, I guess, the duckling survival rates, hen survival rates. And then when those adults do begin to migrate, guess what happens during that time of the year, hunting season. And so we'll, able to, we'll be able to, to track and describe migration habits during the hunting season, be able to document that relationship between migration patterns and weather patterns. A lot of the discussion, Ryan, with our supporters and members in the deep south of the United States is we hear a lot of people say, where are the ducks? You know, when I was a kid or when my dad was a kid, you know, we used to be covered up in ducks. Are, are the flyways shifting? Are ducks short-stopping? Are people feeding them up north? And so this project is really going to give a lot of information to southern duck hunters, or frankly, any duck hunter, about the, mm-hmm. the migration patterns. Also, for those that receive these ducks with transmitters, you know, for during the winter months, they'll know where that particular hen nested. And mm-hmm. so I think it'll, it'll bridge that gap for a lot of people of where do my ducks come from? but then also where do they go? So that'll be a big feature project there. On the hunter recruitment side, one program that I would love for you to look at at some point if you're if your board needs something to, to read, we have this program called the University Hunting Program. And your dad would probably take interest in it as well, given his background. But when I went to college, this is funny, when I went to college, you know, 25, 30 years ago, yeah. I have a wildlife, I have a couple wildlife degrees, but I... Was grew up as a hunter, fell in love with the outdoors, fascinated, right? And I said, I mm-hmm. want to have a career in conservation. So my career is an extension, you know, I think of my love of the outdoors, which included hunting. About 80% of, of students 20, 25 years ago were hunters, and that's why they went to go get that wildlife degree. Today, only about 30% of today's wildlife degree majors are hunters. Wow, really? So when they graduate and get a job that spends hunter dollars or make decisions that affect hunters, they're lacking uh, a a perspective about hunting. So this Mm -hmm. program targets these prominent wildlife universities. We partner with a professor and we run a a hunting curriculum that includes just the non-hunting wildlife degree majors. So we get them their hunter education uh, card. We take them to a shooting range, trap range, shoot trap. We take them on an actual mentored duck hunt. And then afterwards, we, t- we teach them how to clean those ducks and how to cook those ducks. Now, mm. when it's all over with, we'd like them to continue hunting. But if they don't continue hunting and they get that job that we described before, they at least understand hunters. And so they can yeah. start incorporating that, that into their decision-making process. That's a huge one. We're at 72 universities this fall. We're at, uh, I believe there's two of them that we're at in Colorado, uh, University of Colorado, or Colorado State. Boy, yeah, which one? Like, I, I just pulled up the, the map here. It looks like you have one up north and one up south. I don't know how accurate that map is, but um, yeah, it looks like two. And then do you have one up near Salt Lake? Is that what I'm seeing as well? That's yeah, not too yeah, we have yeah, we have seventy two this year, and we do have a whole map there. That you know the yeah. the, the states, ver, you know the the state universities versus the University of. I get those mixed up all the time. But yeah, we have two in Colorado, and um, yeah, so it's a it's a it's a growing program. Seventy two this fall, 
our target list includes 494 universities. And so that's where yeah. we're, we're headed with that one. We have chapters, you know, a lot of like the, I think the banquets that you went to as a kid, Delta has that too. Okay. And, and our chapters retain about 15% of the money that they raise for the organization and mm-hmm. they can spend it on local work. Okay. What's really popular with our chapters is doing local hunter recruitment events, yeah. mentor duck hunts or waterfowl hunting education days. They'll give out scholarships, put up wood duck boxes or different types of structures, partner with state game and fish agencies to improve public hunting areas, things like that. And, and um, so that, that's something that, that we're really proud of. Yeah, that's, that's an important one too. I mean, um, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things at play here. I mean, you look at, uh, you look at what's kind of going on in California and the Klamath going dry and just that whole waterfowl ecosystem and flyway being a little bit altered, you know, that, that the Sacramento Valley out in California used to be known as the epicenter for waterfowl. You know, it was, it was there was duck clubs that you'd pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to, to be a part of. And it was because it was world-class duck hunting. Well, you're starting to hear now, um, that that flyway is, uh, is getting a little, it's, it's altering for sure. And, um, you know, the, the hunting over there is not quite as good. And, you know, you look at like a, a place like California and, um, very populated area, high percentage of you know, of, of the people probably of the Western United States live in California. Right. Um, and there being world class hunting there, I'm sure probably created hunters just because they were like, Oh, it's a, it's a duck hunting thing. You know, there's, there's that whole aspect of hunting that some people want it to be easy. You know, some people want to go sit at the, in the duck blind and, and have, you know, have sausage cooked for them in the morning and, and shoot ducks and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I know, uh, just in, in talking with, I have uh, a buddy over there, um, uh, Jordan, who I've had on the podcast before, he's a part of a duck club over there. And that was one of the big reasons why he started hunting was, you know, the, the duck clubs were easy access over there. Right. Um, with that, that flyway changing, right. I, I could imagine that there's going to be, um, a percentage of of people that are not going to want to get to those duck clubs, and I just wonder about the the ramifications of that. And it's not even it's not even just in California, right? Like it it seems like waterfowl hunting, from what you hear, a lot of it is is changing. You know, you talk to people, um, the the ducks and geese are staying up north a little bit longer, right? So they're not coming down to to our level here in Colorado uh, quite as early. Um, you know, there's, there's all these changes and not to mention, uh, the latest duck, uh, number study that I don't, probably the national, uh, national fish and wildlife service put out showed that duck numbers just in general are, are down, um, this year. Um, and I'm not, not sure what exactly the, how that, uh, ties into the, you know, 10, 20, 30 year ebbs and flows of duck populations, but you, you hear that duck hunting is changing. So um, I, I think that uh, having hunter recruitment programs like that are, are super important. The, the thing that I do wonder uh, about it, and I wonder if you guys have some way to address this, but um, is the whole, you know, private public land situation. Obviously, a lot of duck hunting and goose hunting takes place on 
private land. It's ag fields. It's you know uh, uh, repairing areas in you know kind of more close to cities. Uh, obviously, geese are taking over golf courses now. Um, what what do you guys have any plans in place to kind of do you guys have like leases or anything that these people can go to, or are you guys mostly operating on public land or what's, what's the strategy there? Yeah. I, I guess on the front of one, those are some great statements you, you made there. I'll, I'll just choose to support some of them. Uh, cause I think you said some good things there. I guess the first part there is, you know, Delta, we don't, we don't do hunting as a job. Right, mm-hmm. so we you know we don't take people hunting necessarily, uh, other than our chapters on the recruitment hunts. Yeah. But one interesting thing that you you know that I would point out is, for waterfowl production, about ninety percent of the ducks on this continent come from private land, mm-hmm. not public land. But you're right though when you flip it around, I think the overwhelming majority of hunting occurs on, on private ground not mm-hmm. to the public ground, right? So it's interesting. So there's so much of what we rely on is the private ground for both production and hunting access. But I would say that, you know, through urbanization and and just certain areas being close to hunting, I, I would say that there's, yes, I would say that there has been a, a decline in available areas to hunt. And one of the things that pops up in survey after survey after survey that either Delta conducts or someone else conducts a human dimensions hunting uh, focused study is one of the top reasons that people are struggling to continue hunting or leave hunting is, is access. You know, the, the spot that was just around the corner, now they're traveling three hours and that Klamath area that you're talking about, the situation now has just been absolutely massive drought to the point where they closed some of these massive public lands in the Klamath Basin National Wildlife Refuge complex because there wasn't any water. And so I did ask some of the biologists out that on that part of the world, I said, so what are hunters going to do? Like, is there somewhere else they can go? And the answer for a lot of them was there's no place other for them to go locally other than to take a trip. And so, yeah, you're, you're going to see a lot of people out there. But I think from, from Delta's perspective, we have a, a, a pretty big policy department where, I'll give you an example, that you may have caught in the media there's been two or three different waves of public land that were once close to hunting that opened to hunting. And it's mm-hmm. primarily on the National Wildlife Refuge system. Yeah. And so basically you have a National Wildlife Refuge system and there are, you know, some refuges were all or most of the refuge was close to hunting. And, and so basically there was this effort afoot to look at the plans that resulted in these refuges being closed. And and after further review, it was felt that significant portions of these refuge, they could, they could accomplish the mission, the, the mission of the refuge and o- while still opening up a good chunk of that refuge to hunting. And so you basically saw over the last several years, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of acres opened to public hunting, not just for waterfowl, but for lots of other types of hunting. Yeah. And so I do think you know, the public land is, I do most of my hunting on public land. I, I'm just a, a blue collar hunter. When I travel out for, for mule deer hunts or elk hunts or, or antelope hunts, it's all on public land. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my waterfowl hunting too is, is on public land simply because you don't have to knock on a door. And, and I kind of feel like as a taxpayer or a duck stamp purchaser, I bought it anyway. So I might as well go, go take advantage of that. But, but yeah, I don't know that, I don't know if there's any one answer but um, 
you know, as, as you're probably, I'm not sure if Colorado has walk-in hunting programs or not, but a lot of the Western states do. Yep. Yeah. Our state here, state of North Dakota has this big program called uh, private lands open to sportsmen plots. Mm -hmm. And they're marked with an upside down yellow triangle. And it's a small payment that goes to landowners to leave, to allow hunters to go on their land without permission. And I think it's more of that. Yeah. That, um, as pressure increases on private land, we need to support public hunting programs and defend those public hunting properties. Definitely. Yeah. And that, that's, I, I think, uh, especially out West here, that's what a lot of the, <clears throat> the hunting is, is, you know, it's on, it's on public land. That's, that's what I do now. And, uh, you know, there's some really great wildlife refuges and stuff like that. The, the, uh, I find that the problem is sometimes, you know, I've, I have this one spot pretty close to here that it's, it's not great for ducks, but, uh, when it is great for ducks, it's really great for ducks. Problem is it's right off the highway. And so there's like all these guys that are driving by and I'll see, you know, 20, 20 mallards grinding one night. And then the next morning it's just, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fireworks show. Um, so I, I definitely think like what you're talking about, more access and defending what we have now, not, not losing any of them are such a big thing. I mean, do you guys, um, do you, I know you said that you, you don't necessarily buy land, um, but do you guys do anything in that, in that realm with Delta waterfowl that's, you know, creating more land for, cause I, you know, I feel like when I heard about you guys, I thought that I had heard that that was kind of like one of your main things was buying plots of you know private land that connect public land or something like that you guys have any resources like that or was we, that we don't we don't it's you know what the, the i guess the route that we've chosen to take is through policy and or legislative action yeah. Yeah. and and we find that you know we can take our our membership you know which is they fluctuates every year but you know we can take a membership of sixty thousand supporters and we can do more legislatively with their support, you know, as a laser focused hunting organization and, and work to have, you know, I think single actions that can result in thousands or millions of acres of, of, of land open to hunting. So that, that's, that's oh, yeah. Delta waterfowl's angle for sure. That's just as important, just as important get, you know, the, the legislation, I mean, it's probably even more important because, you know, your, your average Joe Blow doesn't necessarily have the the resources to you know, they might be able to buy a, a piece of hunting ground, you know, or, or purchase a lease or something like that, but they don't, at least I don't have the power to go up to Washington, DC and really, really pull weight over there. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely super important. Um, I think I the other thing, Ryan, though, like philosophically, you know, farmland is expensive, absolutely mm -hmm. expensive or to outcompete you know, uh, I guess a real estate developer or to, to compete for land with the farm and ranch community. You know, mm -hmm. you go back to that 90% of ducks come from private land. And, and so it's, it's prohibitively expensive to try to do something meaningful with little old hunter dollars. If you really want that massive impact, and I'm not saying don't do the small projects, of course, because it all adds up. Mm -hmm. But if you really want the big win, it comes with with taxpayer dollars. It comes with the societal benefits that everyone receives from 
natural lands, public lands, conservation lands. You know, like there's kind of, there's been this movement going on for maybe the last 10 to 15 years of coining this term called environmental goods and services. And that is a concept that you can easily describe to someone in, in the middle of a big city that doesn't go out to nature. You receive benefits from these natural lands, which happen to have hunting take place on them, but whether it's clean air, clean water, carbon sequestration, um, you know, environmental goods and services. Yeah, no, that's, that's true. Um, I want to, I want to touch on just one more thing. Uh, I, I kind of want to get into some other stuff, but I, I, I do have a question and maybe you can answer it. Um, so obviously I, I had referenced earlier the the study that just came out this year, uh, showed that a lot of the, the duck numbers were down. Um, but there were there were a couple of species that I think were up. I want to say it was was it blue winged teal and maybe scop or something like or or bluebills. I, I can't remember. But my question is: um, Are you guys finding obviously with with habitat loss, there's some species that adapt much easier to uh, changes, right? I mean, look at Canada geese. Um, I mean, you even look at snow goose, snow geese, right? They they have the conservation season now because they've adapted so well to to cornfields and ag fields. But particularly Canada geese, I feel like they've adapted to urban living almost. Um, are you, have you guys seen any species in the duck world that are kind of thriving from from urban development or you know golf courses or anything like that? You know, I think you know you'd hit the nail square on the head with Canada geese. You know, I think most states that I'm, I guess all the states that I've cared to look at have a resident goose season. And in North Dakota, we have one. I think you can shoot 15 Canada geese. I'd have to consult the regs. But you can shoot before the migration of northern geese comes into North Dakota. Residents can go out and harvest 15. It takes starts in August, which is... That's fishing season for me. I, I I don't go out there and swap mosquitoes, but uh, but I love that people do. Yeah. But yeah, so they've definitely thrived in a in a human altered landscape. I I wouldn't say that there are any ducks who have benefited necessarily from from I guess the more of the urbanization. Um, in in some regards, all waterfowl have benefited from waste grain and and the presence of agriculture. You know, yeah. at one time for snow geese, their migration from the tundra to coastal Louisiana and Texas, they had to make that, that flight, you know, I don't want to say nonstop, but they had to make it quite quick. And so food resources were a limiting factor. And that migration probably did, you probably did lose a percentage of the population during that southward and northward migration. But right now with sanctuary habitat, refuge habitat, and then just seas of, of, of ag fields where there's plenty of food in that, in that stubble field, whether it's wheat or corn or whatever it may be. So certainly they've benefited from, from migration forage, but I think in general, um, the expansion, uh, human expansion has altered the landscape to the point where ducks are not as successful reproductively because most ducks nest in the grass. They, they, they'll establish a pair um, on a pond and then they will, the hen will go up into the grass to have a nest. And so if you pick a mallard, it'll take about 35 days from the day that hen lays her first egg 
to when she hatches her brood. So she has to avoid predation for that entire time period. And so I think when, when you eliminate a lot of the grassland habitat and replace it with agriculture, what's happened is you've concentrated duck numbers and predator numbers. And so it's just a heck of a lot easier for, for predators to, to find those duck nests and lower that reproductive success. But I think one of what we've learned, you know, over the past many years is just how adaptable a mallard is. And so a mallard is almost bulletproof. Those, you know, that duck does so well. You know, we find them, we actually have one, our office is in town, but we have a mallard that comes back and nests underneath, right up in our window against the shrubs every oh. year. We, you know, we'll see them nesting on rooftops. We'll see them nesting um, on abandoned farm equipment. It's just kind of ridiculous. But, yeah. but I'd say in general, the pressures are negative. Yeah. On breeding waterfowl, probably positive on migrating waterfowl. Okay. Yeah. So kind of maybe almost a, a net loss there because I, I, I could imagine the, the breeding is a little bit more important than the, than the migrating. I mean, yeah, it's about, it's, it's well over, uh, well over 80% of what determines whether a duck population grows, maintains or declines happens with breeding season events. Yeah. So it's absolutely the most critical time of the year. Yeah. So right now, um, there are probably more predators on the landscape than there have traditionally ever been. I mean, and by predators, and especially in the context of ducks, right? You're talking about raccoons, uh, foxes, coyotes, um, snakes, some some other, you know, some some birds. Um, th- that is correct, right? I mean, it's that's kind of like what the scientists yeah. are saying we're having, we have the most. So what, um, what's the, are there any plans in place there to kind of keep that down? Because I've, I've heard, um, and read studies of, you know, 5% hatch rates in certain areas with a ton of predators on mallards and stuff like that. Are, have you guys done anything in that realm, uh, to kind of help, uh, the, the breeding ducks there? Yeah, that's actually one of the that's actually one of the most popular parts of what Delta does. Mm. Right up front, you're right. Um, but but I want to put out this this uh, note before we get on it into into it is that I don't want to demonize predators. Predators have always played uh, a valuable role in you know in the in the ecosystem and in the natural management of of wildlife populations. But you're right. the 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 current predator population is out of balance. Mm-hmm. So if you if you came across the, the the prairies, North Dakota, Saskatchewan prairies, in a covered wagon, you would have seen endless seas of grass and wetlands everywhere, as far mm-hmm. as you could see. So that was duck duck heaven in the sense yeah. from from a reproductive standpoint, and. So the important part there is the ducks were dispersed across the landscape. And you're right, the predator community was different. We had grizzly bears here on the prairies. We had wolves on the prairies. But when the grasslands were replaced with agriculture and the top carnivores were eliminated, of course there aren't bears here on the prairies and the wolves are Mm -hmm. gone as well. But this modern-day landscape favors a predator community that either wasn't here or had low populations. There were not raccoons on the prairie breeding grounds at no. all, except in some of the riparian areas, like the lower reaches of the Missouri River. 
Skunks were here, but they were in very low numbers. Red fox um, currently are are suppressed by mange, but you also have mink and badgers and fox and coyotes, ground squirrels, the list goes on and on. And so basically Delta has a large and growing predator management program. So we basically target areas that have extremely high breeding densities of ducks, yet we know that their reproductive success is low. And when I say low, it takes about 15 to 20% of duck nests to hatch to maintain a population. We're going into areas that have consistently less than 10% hatching rate, hatching on a year, oftentimes below that 5% that you were talking about. And we hire a trapper to come in during the nesting season. And again, it's not an eradication program, but what they do is they restore the balance between predator and prey and duck hatch rates, duck nest hatch rates, they explode. You know, they go from 5% to 35 to 40%. And so we turn these areas from sink habitat where ducks come and don't do well to source habitat, meaning they come, they thrive, and they add ducks to the population. Uh, We recently launched this effort. We call it the Million Duck Campaign. And basically we have an artificial nest structure program called a hen house. And so these are cylinders mounted on a pole over wetlands, and mallards use them. They're amazing mallard-producing tools. We call them mallard factories. And then we have this predator management program. But we have a, a plan in place. We're executing it right now. And, the, and at the end of the plan, or end of the end result is we're, we're going to be raising a million ducks each and every year in perpetuity Wow! with those two programs. So, so, and so those are going to be, those are obviously not, are you talking about like farm raised ducks or you're just, oh, these are wild to, ducks. Yep. No, okay, these are wild yeah, ducks. Okay. Yep. okay. Just, just through those programs. That's, that's kind of the goal. Yeah. With, with our team of biologists, we have maps and models. So we know where there are the highest breeding densities of ducks. We okay. have land use maps. So we know where the grass is and isn't. Mm-hmm. And so we have a search image of how we can have the maximum impact with our efforts. And so we have probably 163 areas targeted across the United States and Canada where we will do the trapping program. That'll raise 750,000 ducks a year. Wow. And then we have locations identified for about 110,000 hen houses. Mm-hmm. That will produce a quarter million mallards per year. Wow. And so when those are firing, it's, yeah, it's a million ducks per year in perpetuity. That's that's awesome. Uh, that that's really cool. I'm glad to hear that the the future of ducks are are safe with you guys. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's one of those things where I always say, you know, there's nobody that can do it alone, but sure. uh, many hands makes light work, and oh, yeah. and uh, we'll see what we can do. Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Well, I I kind of want to switch uh, subjects and talk a little bit about avian influenza. Um, sure. So I think there's kind of two, two extremes on this, right? If you follow the, the the proper, if you if you curate your social media feed uh, to one one hole, right? Uh, all you're seeing is that uh, you know all of these ducks. It, it looks like it's very popular or uh, common among snow geese, which would probably make sense because they're you know typically flocked up in bigger 
bigger groups than say you know some mallards or something like that i don't know if that's true but that's just what it looks like but anyway you you'd, you'd take it and you'd see it uh, you, you'd uh, probably come to the conclusion that man we're really going to be struggling from you know this avian influenza outbreak this year because it's one of the one of the worst right but then there's also the other side of a lot of people have no idea that this is even going on um what would you mind just kind of giving us a breakdown on on what avian influenza is and how it's affecting the ducks right now and and geese yeah yeah for sure you know i i hate saying that that dirty word covid but mm-hmm. but i find that people's experiences with covid help me tell other stories and so mm-hmm. covid kind of helps me tell this story as well bird flu is not a new thing bird mm-hmm. flu is and there's many strains of bird flu but there have been different strains of avian influenza popping up. High path avian influenza, so that's what you hear, highly pathogenic avian influenza, or HPAI, that is a name given because that particular strain of, of avian influenza will kill domestic poultry. So it's a domestic poultry name. Mm. Now, prior to 2014, HPAI was only in domestic birds in North America. But in 2014, 15, 16, we started seeing uh, wild ducks and geese, you know, exhibiting uh, uh, negative symptoms, mm-hmm. contracting, not just carrying, they always, always carry and act as a, as a vector for, for avian influenza. But for the first time, they were showing uh I guess, symptoms. They were experiencing clinical symptoms, sickness, some death. During that 2014 to 16 time period, there were only 100 wild ducks and geese that were, that had positive, that tested positive for HPAI. But then after 2016, it pretty much disappeared off the landscape up until last December. And mm-hmm. so I would tell you, Ryan, that, that from, and I'm not a disease expert or an epidemiologist, but I do know, know enough to be dangerous, but we are in uncharted waters. Mm. And so basically what we are seeing is yes. So what normally did not impact ducks and geese is. Mm. So the symptom, there are many symptoms up to and, and including death. So we're in uncharted waters. The one thing that I would say though, which is important is that there's a couple things here and, and I can give you a bunch of links that, that if you wanted to share to people or put them in the podcast notes, but yeah. you know, I have a whole bunch of links that I, web links that I've accumulated to the seat, you know, center for disease control, you know, with their, in, with how they basically describe the risk to humans. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's still low, right? Yeah. They also give considerations that people should take when they're handling birds, cleaning birds, you know, things like don't smoke while you're out, you know, bird hunting. Don't, mm. you know, don't drink water, clean, wear rubber gloves when, when you're cleaning and things like that. But they still say that the risk to humans is low. Mm. There's only been one known infection, and that was a, a poultry worker mm. who, who recovered from, from, their, from uh, contracting even influenza. So they didn't mm. die. And so that's, that's what I would say there. But, but basically what's happening is there's a growing list of species this time, you know, 2021 to now, the, 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 rate, the distribution of the virus has grown since the 2014-15 outbreak, and the list of species is growing as well. 
But the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who they're the ones whose job it is to to manage and regulate waterfowl populations, they have not uh, released any concerns yet for continental waterfowl populations, primarily because you start with such a huge population. And honestly, death in waterfowl populations, I, I should say it's normal. You know, I think, yeah. you know, certain listeners may have experiences with avian botulism outbreaks or avian cholera outbreaks. Those outbreaks can claim tens or hundreds of thousands of birds in a given year. Mm. And so it, you know, from everything that I've been told and the experts that I've talked to, they have yet to express any concerns for the wild bird populations. Now, they do have some concerns for more, for smaller population bird species. I've heard some concerns over some various tern species or species of gannets, you know, which those are not hunted, but eagles are are succumbing to bird flu at a Mm. very high clip. I haven't heard any concerns about their population, but that's a conspicuous bird that uh, commonly feeds on, you know, on waterfowl. So you're seeing it pop up, you know, I've, I've done three podcasts for Delta on this topic and, and just keep staying on top of it. But yeah, you do see lots of chatter out there in social media. We receive quite a few questions about, you know, people with dead or dying birds. And what we tell people is don't touch it. You know, if you see it, leave it, but you know, kind of the whole see something, say something, contact your state biologist your federal biologist and report it. They may want to test it. They may not, mm-hmm. but it's, it's something that everyone is definitely keeping an eye on. And from the last conversation I had, it's probably not going to be over anytime soon. And so it's, you know, we're probably going to be dealing with this for a little while. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's good to hear that, uh, you know, the fish and wildlife services and that concern to whether you know shutting down hunting seasons and stuff like that uh, and it's it's also kind of like uh <clears throat> i feel like it's almost very cwd like right where um it's one of those diseases that it, you see these birds um it looks like a lot of them you know when they get near the end they kind of lose some of their motor skills you know you'll see them swimming in circles um you'll see him flapping around it looks like a pretty brutal disease same with like cwd right you see see a deer at the end of of their life with cwd and it's just really not pretty so i'm sure that has has some effect um on you know how it's how it's perceived um but so like are there any populations of you know is it that cinnamon teal are are more that we're finding that they're more immune than you know, lesser scop or goldeneye are, are doing much better than, than mallards. Are there any species that are more resilient or less resilient to, to getting this, or is it too early to tell? You know, I'd say it's too early to tell. Some of the chatter out there is, is and I haven't heard an expert definitively say that snow geese are more vulnerable, but what we are seeing is that more often than not, people are reporting detections in snow geese. And what I've yet to to, dis, to distinguish is, is it because snow geese are more susceptible or is it because snow geese are white and they're laying yeah. in a field or laying on, you know, it's just so much, they're so much more conspicuous. Yeah. But uh, no, I haven't yet. One of the, you know, I have a, a 
a peer in the USGS who has done a lot of frontline sampling from this past year, and he's waiting on some data to be analyzed. And at the result of that analysis, we're going to determine whether adults or juveniles are more susceptible. It makes more sense that juveniles are more susceptible. Just like a, a newborn child, they're not, they, they don't, they haven't built up an immunity to colds and viruses and different, you know, bacteria types. Mm -hmm. And so it, it is kind of expected that juveniles yeah. will be more susceptible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that makes sense. And I, I think with, you know, I'm sure certain species, you know, it seems like, uh, like widgeon gadwall, I always see them if they're on a golf course or something like that, they're always like super close together, you know, mm -hmm. where, and same thing kind of with, with snow geese as they, it just always looks like they're a little bit closer together than, you know, sometimes honkers or Canada's, I don't know. It, it just seems different. Maybe it's all perception, but. Well, like, with those snow geese, you know, there's flocks of, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands, you know, yeah. comprised of young of the year and adults. And, and so it, it does make sense, you know, that, yeah. yeah, they're more conspicuous and yeah, they are in larger flocks for sure. Yeah. So as a, I assume you you duck hunt, duck and goose hunt quite often out there in North Dakota. Have you seen? Uh, have you come across it in in the wild? The the bird flu. I have not. I have not. Yeah. It's for me. It's just all stories. Yeah. And 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 we get quite a few of those stories. But yeah. but yeah, I have not personally witnessed it myself. And and it seems to have um, picked the frequency of detections. Seems to have picked up. In, and yeah. and I, th I think we kind of saw that coming or yeah. anticipated that it would come because during, during you know, it, it first hit everyone's radar screen, at least from a hunter's perspective, during the spring migration of snow geese back to, the, to their northern breeding grounds. And, but again, big white bird out in the dirt field laying there dead, they're quite easy to see. And so when there's hunters out there, the detection is, is quite likely that you're going to see and find that bird. But then once they do reach their breeding grounds, by definition, ducks and geese disperse across the landscape. They have breeding territories. And so those, those ducks are, and geese are more dispersed across the, the landscape. But then when it comes back to that fall migrating, you know, migration behavior, they come back into those large flocks. So we did anticipate that there'd be an uptick in, in viral transmission. Seems to have happened, but like I said, it's definitely... This is absolutely one of those new frontier type situations and everyone, you know, including, you know, the epidemiologists in, in North America anyway, are experiencing this for the first time. Yeah. So I, I don't want to take too much more of your time here. I know we're coming up on, uh, on the, some, some things that both of us have to do. Uh, but if you, as a, if you had all the power in the world and uh, there was one big issue that's affecting you know waterfowl uh numbers or or it could be hunter numbers right if there's one thing that you could change in the waterfowl world what would it be jeez one thing wow yeah if i had to do one thing i would protect all wetland habitat forever in perpetuity just yep. make sure that none of that stuff can get touched Yep. You made me pick one thing. And the reason I say that is, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg mm -hmm. with ducks, water comes first, grass second. 
Water determines how big of a population you can have. So if you don't have water, you don't have ducks. The grass determines how well they reproduce. So it all starts with waters, with yeah. water. And so when you drain a wetland, it's really, really hard to get it back. It's expensive. Right. No one, you know, someone drained it because they didn't want it. And mm-hmm. so to put it back, it's really hard. So that'd be the one thing from a, from a conservation side. I'd say from a hunting side, though, I guess it would have to be either one of two things. And one of these is a soapbox item, the second one. But the first one would be, would be access. I would find some permanent remedy for access. So mm-hmm. when someone wanted to go hunting, that they had access to a quality location, didn't have to worry about the economics of, of being able to access that property. But I think kind of my soapbox item, Ryan, and I know I'm taking liberties on this one, so I'm sorry, but it's that, you know, I grew up hunting waterfowl in a very simple way and, mm-hmm. and, and it was a successful way. It, it, didn't require tons of equipment. It didn't require, you know, me to break the bank or take a loan to be able to be a duck hunter. Mm-hmm. And and I'd kind of like to see that restored. You know, I think when you love hunting, you know, you can only hunt for a couple, three months of the year. And so you dream about it for the other nine. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I have lots of equipment, whether it's big game hunting equipment or duck hunting equipment. But when I boil it all down, I don't need that much to go right yeah. at all yeah. and i i think the economics of hunting has become or the perceived economics the economics the economics of hunting has become a perceived barrier to many people you yeah. know they're saying oh i can't afford that well tell you what all you need to go duck hunting frankly is a shotgun mm-hmm. and some ammunition and you could go duck hunting you can pass shoot you can jump shoot if that's if if you're interested in that or have access if you go next level six decoys and a call, right? It can be that simple. You don't need fancy camouflage. You don't need it all. Now, it's fun to add all of those elements to it, but when it's become a barrier, perceived barrier to entry, I just would like to, I'd like everyone to feel like they could go hunting and they could afford it. Yeah, definitely. I I think that's one of the big things uh, with hunting that's kind of could hold it back I, I always talk about this. I probably talk about it with every conservation uh, guest that we have, but I think we're kind of come up, coming up on a precipice here of, uh, you know, things can either go two ways and a lot of it is from people just not, you know, there's, there's less interest in the outdoors now than there ever has been and less hunters, less lower percentage of, of hunters um, out there. And I think, you know, one of those big things is, especially if you look on social media, there's, it, it, it does make you think that there's a big, uh, economic investment just to get into it. Right. You know, you see all these guys with the, the Sitka gear just decked out and then you get on Sitka website cause you want to get some waiters and you're like, Holy shit, I don't have a thousand dollars to spend on waiters. I mean, but I use, I, my waiters are probably $75. They're, they're neoprene. They're nice and warm. So I, th- I think that's one of the big big things that could possibly hold hold people back and it's just something that uh that needs to needs to change for sure um but yeah man i, I really appreciate you jumping on here uh was there anything else that you wanted to touch on no i think that's good i think that's really I good i appreciate the opportunity to to get to know you a little bit better and and uh share the i guess the delta mission with with any of your listeners yeah, definitely. How do you uh, become a member? What's what should people do? 
Our website is deltawaterfowl.org. And we also have a pretty strong presence on social media, both Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those types of things. But yeah, if you just want to join and be a member, uh, you can. I would recommend going to our website and there's a join button and pretty easy. If you want to take a slower step and just learn a little bit more about Delta and what we do, I, I personally like our Instagram feed. That's easier for me to consume or Facebook and and learn. If you do join as a member, you know we do put out five magazines a year. I think they're pretty exciting issues. It's a great way to stay current on hunting issues, conservation issues, and then learn a little bit where your membership dollars go. Sweet. And are you guys going to be at any of the Western Hunt Expos, BHA, Rendezvous, any of those coming up here? I typically go to the Rendezvous myself, <laughs> you know, just as a, yeah, as a Delta guy, but then also just as a avid, you know, Western big game hunter. So I would expect to, to be there for that. We do send some folks to SHOT Show and, and things like that. But okay. um, we do hit some of the shows, but not from the same perspective that, you know, that, that you guys do. Right on. Well, cool, man. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. Right on. Appreciate it, man. Yeah.